This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. In Shine this week, NBR's Will Mace writes that the infamous maxim, move fast and break things, is anathema to good AI practice. Will, do you mean this literally or metaphorically? I do mean it literally, yeah. I mean, I'm not an AI technician by any means, um, but from what I've been told, you know, and the policies that the likes of Google and OpenAI are espousing, you know, time should be taken, responsibility is high. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility, as people keep in the tech industry keep quoting um, Spider-Man's uncle <laughs> saying. Um, and so the responsible AI um, you know, frameworks are out there. They abound. But I sort of just am still a little bit worried that they're not being followed yes. and that the commercial, um, I suppose, mandate that we all live by um, is, again, anathema to actually sitting back and looking at what's best for humanity and what's best in, in certain specific in, um, instances of the use of AI. Don't you think this is just a repeat of the social media thing and, and other iterations of technology before it, whereas you get people who make a lot of money in Russian and build amazing things, but really the ethical implications or any other implications exactly. are yeah. secondary? I, th- I think so, exactly, yeah. I think people get hurt. Um you know, with social media, we had huge privacy concerns come out. Um, we're still struggling, uh, you know, in these yeah. election cycles with disinformation that's going to get even worse. I mean, AI is sort of building on that and, and, and compounding it. Social media compounded on uh, the ills of social media, compounded on, you know, things before it, mobile internet and the internet itself. And, um, you know, these things, these technologies, they bring great you know, um, wealth to the world and great things to our lives and make our lives better. But um, as, you know, where's the cost-benefit analysis? Um, Urs Holsley, who I, I spoke to, uh, sorry, I didn't speak to him, but he spoke at a conference in Auckland last week, um, was talking about this cost-benefit, uh, you know, um, equation. And it's good to know that Google are thinking about it. They're thinking about it, but it seems like they don't really like it if it's imposed on them too much. Yes, he did mention, you know, someone asked about regulation and his perspective. And, um, you know, he mentioned that the regulation going through the EU at the moment, the AI Act, um, would go very badly, he thought. Um, And, you know, maybe that is, you know, bureaucracy and, and, and free market, you know, tech kind of um, progress aren't always good bedfellows, but there needs to be a, a middle ground there. Um, he sort of believes that, you know, trying to classify what AI is in a regulation or by lawmakers, um, you know, won't won't work. Basically, yeah. we don't actually know what AI is yet, but yeah. just even in defining it in that way um, makes you think, well... Maybe we should slow down a bit and think about what it actually is. I mean, the tech giants have a long history of chafing against EU regulation on anything they do, don't they? Mm. And finally, you also attended a hackathon. Perhaps you can just outline what a hackathon is for dinosaurs like myself and what feeling that gave you about AI. Yeah. Yeah, it was a hackathon that's organised by the AI Forum, um, which is doing some really good work, um, you know, advocating for some of these responsible AI practices and, and actually um, providing spaces for people 
um, for people who are interested in this area to come together and you know flex those those muscles even outside of their day-to-day jobs so that's kind of what a hackathon is you could it's open invite basically and there were at this Auckland one I think there's been two in Auckland and there's they're all around um, the country as well as Fiji and um, they spend 48 hours you form a team spend 48 hours working on a problem that's sort of given to you um, all of the problems in this year's edition are environmentally based. So um, solving things like um, how better to trap pests in native forest or um, classify you know, dying coral reefs, that kind of thing. And the solutions that these people came up with in their teams over 48 hours were astounding. Um, again, from someone who's not a, a technician, it, it just really does, I guess, bolster that optimism that you have about the uses of these technologies um, when it's in the hands of people who, who, who want to do good. But again, you know, <laughs> you still have that foreboding feeling that, um, you know, in the, in, in the hands of, um, of others, that it might be uh, quite dangerous technology. Well, thank you. Thank you. After finding success in the New Zealand market, Gravity Lab is expanding into Australia. Daniel Howe joins me now to talk about his business. Welcome, Daniel. Alrighty, so why don't you just start off by telling me a wee bit about Gravity Lab and how you got started? Yeah, so started around seven years ago. So, um, like I, so my background is management consulting. I really like helping businesses grow and develop and power people, drive performance, um, and I really like technology. And this is a merger of those two. So it's a translation layer, really. Well, it's more than a translation layer, but it's helping people understand where you're trying to get to, what's going to help you get there in terms of business requirements, and then building that out in a technology solution. So it's not the consulting. I've done consulting where you make bits of paper, but we actually build the solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, who are the sort of people that are coming to you wanting sort of solutions? Well, it's varied, you know, so we, we tend to work across the spectrum, but it's mainly mid-market, but mid-market in New Zealand really varies mid-market and headspace because companies like Panasonic fit into that um, or some of the larger clients that we do, a little bit of work with Auckland Council, we've done some with Wellington, um, fun ones as we've worked with the zoos, so done their membership management system, done a big project for Salvation Army recently, Sin7 and Halter, some of these big exporters, yeah, mm-hmm. a whole range. And you're planning on expanding to Australia or you've just started sort of expanding yeah, so to Australia? Yeah, so we've got three people in Australia um, and I was on the call to recruit this morning and we're looking to bump those numbers up. Um, mm-hmm. We've been asked to go into Australia before um, because of the type of work we do and the success we're having and our, our approach to solving these problems works really well. So it kind of makes sense. We, we ended up hiring people over there and then working on New Zealand clients mostly. So now we're just going to build it up further and go build up um, our Australian client base as well. And you mentioned you've been asked to go into Australia before. I mean, who was that by and why now is the right time? Yeah, so we're, we're a Salesforce partner. That's a product that we normally use. Um, don't work for Salesforce, but we use it very heavily. We think it's an amazing tool to solve kind of these sorts of problems and really empower businesses. So we, um, our models worked really well. We're very focused on delivering well and then delivering to outcome focused. A lot of people see these as tech projects and they go, well, I've delivered everything in your scope and I've done exactly what you've told me as per the contract. And we go, yeah, that's important, but the contract's a guide delivering on the outcomes is what is really important. So what I think is really important is you take that scope and what you think the brief is going to be and if you've delivered a project that's exactly like that brief, I don't think you've fought during the process. So we expect our team to work really hard and think really hard and enjoy the process and learn things. And as they learn things, go, 
wouldn't this be a better way of doing it? Have you thought about this? We've done this for our, you know, for other people in the market. Why don't you just copy them? Mm-hmm. Is a good strategy. So we've got lots of time tried and tested approaches there. And you've got a really unique ownership structure. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So it was around. So we've got two brands. We've got Gravity Lab that does technology, and we've got Revenue Lab who do. Um, sales and go-to-market strategy. So this mm-hmm. small shareholding by Amanda Armstrong, who's in Revenue Lab. Um, but the 90% of the shares are owned by a, basically a charitable investment trust called Charity Lab, just for fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I made that decision around three years ago of going, well, what really matters to me? Where What the difference do I want to make in the world? And I want to maximize good in this world. And I want to tackle some really big, hairy problems and make a big difference. And that's what I was doing, so I set up the legal structures to match that. So we're basically owned by a charity. And do you think other businesses and founders should be thinking along the same lines? I would challenge them not to do it out of a pulse um, because you should. I think should is a dangerous word. So we've got um, people give because they think they should give to a disaster relief. They should give to a bagger. Good things. But what do you, what really excites you? And for me, that's like, what sort of problems do you want to solve in this world? So for us, we stop um, human trafficking, particularly child sex trafficking, because it's the most evil thing in the world. It's just horrific. And I don't want to live in a world where that happens. I also don't want to live in a world where there's such high suicide rates and there's such abuse and there's poverty and things. But I focus on that as my problem to solve because I think it's a solvable problem. So based on that charity work, we hire eight rescue agents um, in Southeast Asia who are incredibly effective and we do around two to three hundred rescues a year and that's really great and that's beautiful work but the more important part is doing really good prosecutions because we can prosecute the perpetrators and we've had good success in prosecuting corrupt officers so we can take down corruption at that level that has a systematic change in the country and for us to get eight people to make that bigger change it's just an amazing ROI Mm. So I challenge business owners to, one, think about what they really care about, and secondly, give with ROI in mind. Like, what's the most effective way of making a difference to these problems? And giving away money with no thought is a bad strategy. Like, pick the best way of giving. Mm. And do you ever sort of envision a time where you split Revenue Labs and Gravity Labs? No, they're, they're, they're symbiotic. They're, they're, they're separate, but um, they overlap a lot. They've, we've got the same... The same vision is just to help company engage their staff, grow their performance, you know, and grow, grow the top line and the mm-hmm. bottom line. You know, be more. Um, but we do it from different angles. So we cross refer. Um, we've had clients come to us going, "Oh, I really need a sales system to go this." And we go, "Okay, that sounds good. Tell me about how you're managing your sales teams. Tell me about how you're doing this. Tell me how you do KPIs." Okay, you've got other problems, and they're not technology problems. So with integrity, you've got to go, let's solve those problems, and a piece of tech's not going to fix that problem. And vice versa, we're trying to optimise your your channels, and we're trying to optimise your pricing structure, give us all the data. We've got no data on that because your technology is broken. Okay, we need to fix the technology. Actually make all of that dynamic so you don't ever do this process. It's not a one-off pricing or channel strategy itself optimizes. And having those two divisions, does, does that give you a competitive edge over some of your competitors? Yeah, it, it, it really does. But where it really matters is if you come to us, say, I lead the technology side, if you come to us with a technology project, we think in a way that's broader than just technology. And we can bring in experts from the Revenue Lab really quickly. So they come in, they might run a workshop. We were doing, um, looking at a project recently, and they go, oh, 
you know we can do the work. You know, Salesforce is a great platform. You're pretty confident with your managers, but you're not sure your salespeople are going to use it. Why don't we bring in someone who works and's hired hundreds and thousands of salespeople, train them up to have those robust discussions and get them excited and on board? Yeah. And beyond Australia, is there any other markets you'd be interested in entering? I think at this stage, you know, I don't want to be overly ambitious around stretch further than we want to go. As a company, we've never really tried to grow, which is a bizarre thing for a successful company. Um, we've tried to do the fundamentals right, always being fanatic about offering real customer value and then really trying to hire and develop the best people. We're only as good as our team. We're only as good as our last projects. We put a lot of effort in there. It takes a lot of effort, and I really enjoy it. I love it. Um, Australia's a bigger market, and it's a good place for us to go. We do... we. Have, we've got clients in Canada and the USA and stuff like that, but I actually think they're a little bit of a distraction from our model. We could grow there, but let's grow well. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Awesome, thanks. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Hilmari Schultz. Hilmari, you're looking at the public sector. Is it too big? Hi, John. Nice to see you. Um, it is quite a loaded question. And I think if we ask about if the government's too big or not, um, we have to look under the hood and look at the complexities of where the money goes and how the money is utilised and what it actually leads to. What is the impact of our government funding? What are the benefits of a big public sector and, and what are the cons? Um, so I do think it depends on where the funding is spent. Um, there's been a lot of research around how big our government should be and of what it should focus on. Um, and um, there's a Canadian economist, uh, Professor Mathieu, who has done some research on where is that tipping point. Um, so he reckons if more than 30% of GDP goes through government funding, or expenditure, um, it actually starts impeding economic growth and doesn't contribute meaningfully to social outcomes. Okay. So what would a smaller public sector and government mean for the economy then? It depends. I think it's where you uh, where you where you do the culling and the cutting. Um, we also know that if government expenditure focuses on basics and the needs, it goes well. But once we start looking at subsidising corporates, uh, doing wasteful projects and lofty programmes and maybe too generous uh, pay packages to government officials, that's where you start looking at what it should look like. And also maybe in New Zealand we have quite a few other crown entities. I think we have about 40 crown entities and quite a significant proportion of them have no teeth. So if I have to say what their impact on our economic growth and social outcomes are, I would say that that would be minimal. Well, let's look at it. If a public department were to shed staff, I just think of the ACT Party, which wants to reduce the number of people at the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. What would that mean for the economy? I guess, first of all, unemployment would go up. Absolutely, unemployment would go up because the government is um, quite a significant employer within our economy because they are a very big actor. You know, over 40% of our expenditure comes from the government. 
But I would think we should look at this around about the impact. So what is the impact of MB? Uh, what parts of the economy do they enable? So I don't think it's just having a blanket, we're going to cull government officials. I think that would be irresponsible. I think we should look at the impact of specific entities within the government and uh, if we can look at culling some of them, if they have um, hardly any impact on economic growth or on good social outcomes. Let's look at where the government and public sector have played a part in the last few years. I'm thinking of the stimulus measures that were introduced to help prop up the economy during COVID. I guess, was that the right thing to do in reflection? Was the tap turned on for too long? Oh, I think it depends on how you look at the recovery. And if the, uh, at that stage, I think it was a good idea because we had to support our communities in terms of um, especially the cost of living. But now if you look at it, um, currently the government is now going to put up fuel taxes. So if you look at the Labour Party saying that they're going to cut GSD on fruit, if you put up fuel taxes worth 12 cents, um, that will equalise each other. So to me, it's not only looking at that tax part, but in the last 20 years, the government's tax take has gone up over 200%. So I think we have to look very closely at where that tax money has gone and what has been the impact of that tax money. Is there a sweet spot where there's an ideal mix of private, public around the world? Is it 50-50? What is it? So the sweet spot is around, if you look at developed economies, it's around about 30%. They say around about 30% is sort of a maximum where government involvement after that starts hindering um, further economic growth and um, meaningful social outcomes. Should the public sector be in the focus during this campaign and after? I think the public sector will always be in the focus, but I think it should be um, looking at the entirety of it. I don't think it's the size that's that important. It's more about the impact of the government and where the funding goes. Um, but it is important, you know, it's important that we take look at all these things to be able to decide, is our government too big or is it too small or where should the money go? So I think having all of this in the open is a very good idea. And what do you mean by impact? Do you mean it's not just economic impact, but social? Yes. So I think it's a combination. And um, I truly believe that, you know, internal economic growth is not going to work. So we have to look at the combination of um, making sure that we have access to good health, you know, good education, looking after our elderly, but also growing our economy to make sure that we have a consistent and long-term good tax base. Hilmari Schultz, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jono. The Health and Safety at Work Adventure Activities Amendment regulations were passed on August 7th. Introduced in response to the Whakare White Island tragedy, these rules dictate more onerous obligations for operators and more powers for WorkSafe, but operators want more guidance. With me to discuss is Matt Hutchison, an associate at Duncan Cottrell. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. Can you just explain to us what these amendments basically 
require? Sure, absolutely. So I guess we can take a step back and look at what the uh, regulations are in the first place. So um, these are relatively new uh, targeted uh, regulations of this industry coming in at about uh, 2014. Uh, the regulations themselves were originally just uh, prescribing that you needed to be registered, you need to pass a safety audit, um, but rather limited really in terms of what we see from other uh, targeted regulation. Um, what we saw was uh, following the Fakari White Island disaster as the government took a step back and said we need to really take a look at if this is doing what it's supposed to do. So uh, much like the Pike River disaster uh, sparked a change in health and safety generally, uh, the Fakari disaster sparked a change for this particular industry. Um, an independent review was commissioned and found that look, it was... Uh, lacking in a, in a number of uh, areas, WorkSafe regulation and the uh, wider uh, regulation of that industry, and found that there were many improvements needed. And so what these new regulations do, effectively they uh, have an enhanced uh, registration process. It's much harder to get a license. It's much harder to keep a license. Uh, WorkSafe is also able to cancel and amend a license uh, with a much wider scope, um, importantly including immediately suspending a license uh, without due process. And another uh, issue that's come into play is a new duty which uh, requires these operators uh, to tell their patrons um, all of the risks that could really uh, affect them, which wasn't in place before. Right. I mean, with Fakari White Island, I seem to recall that there, there is a huge disclaimer that you do sign. So mm. they, the company would probably say we did tell, tell our customers. But are they saying it's got to be more explicit? Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Look, it needs to be in a, in a briefing session, I think, is really the thrust of this. I see. Um, this uh, new rule that WorkSafe can immediately suspend licences, I imagine that would have the industry a little concerned. I, th I think that is a, a, a correct <laughs> a correct statement there. Um, look, that in, in conjunction with the, the enhanced registration process, there are uh, quite a lot of um, criticism coming from the industry. Um, the immediate suspension is, is quite unique. I mean, generally you would need to provide the licence holder um, some notice and the ability to provide submissions. Uh, suspending immediately, if WorkSafe hold reasonable grounds, there's an immediate risk to safety. That's relatively subjective and you can see why businesses would be concerned about losing uh, the ability to, to make profit uh, for, for a period of a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, there is a bit of a backlash from them. They are complaining that they haven't been briefed properly on these new rules, is that? Absolutely. Look, the, as I understand it, the, the effect of the backlash is, is that the regulations, the amended regulations come into force in April uh, next year. So there is a lead time. Um, but uh, separate to that, the government has said that they will be developing some guidance on how to actually deal with these natural hazard risks. Now, natural risks are quite dynamic and changing. You're not talking about a, a fixed environment in a workplace. This is out in the open uh, where really anything can occur. And the backlash is really, uh, shouldn't that guidance come before the enforcement date? Right. What could be done in that space? What, what do you think as a lawyer, you know, how could WorkSafe satisfy this in terms of getting its guidance out there? Or the government, sorry, not WorkSafe. Look, look, yeah, look, absolutely. I think 
the, the difficulty lies, I mean, from the operator's perspective, I, I see where they're coming from. Um, they would like to know, you know, how can they uh, better their safety practices? And so the, the, uh, the obvious answer there from their perspective is perhaps it's a, a cart before the horse approach and it should be the other way around, get that guidance out sooner. Uh, on the other hand, look, I mean, these these are operators that are operating in dangerous circumstances and, and there is an obligation under the General Health and Safety at Work Act for you to get across that information yourself. So it is a difficult position. I can sort of see see merit both ways. Mm. There's often been um, criticism of, of um, WorkSafe that there aren't enough inspectors, for example, that it's sort of stretched for resourcing, um, that it might be ineffective and effectual. What do you say to that? What, what's your experience been? Oh, look, look in my, in my experience, um, it's quite difficult to comment. I know that they, they are in a uh, sort of an area of change in, in, in recent months. Um, I think there has been some criticism on the, uh, the focus of, of prosecution and enforcement, and that has been drawn out in, in various reviews and commentary. Um, recently, it seems there's a bit more of a shift towards the education, which is one of the main uh, focuses of WorkSafe. I think that's quite positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is heading into a sort of a more positive ground uh, with that education uh, focus. And just finally on that topic, um, the general election coming up, is that going to change anything about the way this rolls out, do you think? Not not that I could really look into. Uh, I, I did uh, have, have a look to see if any of the parties are proposing any substantial changes. It doesn't seem like there's anything right. much on the so table. So it's got bipartisan support, really? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Okay. Now tell us about these two children caught in a sea cave. <laughs> yes, somewhat related in the sort of adventure tourism industry. So mm. a company called uh, Dive uh, to Dukaka has recently agreed to an enforceable undertaking. Um, the background, if we just step back for the case, is uh, in 2020, uh, this company took some local school children and their teachers on a, a kayaking excursion, uh, exploring um, an area of Poor Knights Island around a, a cave inlet. Um, unfortunately, as, as is the case in, in these matters, uh, two children capsized um, and were stuck in that cave. Uh, quite a yeah. horrific experience for them, but mm-hmm. thankfully uh, they, they escaped with some minor bruises and scratches and, of course, some some post-traumatic stress. Yes. Yeah. But primarily, what was the company pinged for? What had it done wrong? WorkSafe draw criticism, and, and this is the difficulty because we don't know if, if these allegations would have um, mm. you know, yeah. passed the test in the court, but WorkSafe alleged that they didn't consult enough with the school, uh, that they didn't have uh, proper procedures in place for identifying that cave in particular as a no-go area. Uh, that they weren't adequately assessing the swell and the current and all the very dynamic risks as we spoke about. And also, interestingly, that they weren't mandating flotation devices or wetsuits. Um, so that's where the criticism lay, and 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 you can see some merit in, in a charge on that basis if that's exactly true. It's, it does seem strange, though, because, I mean, this company has been around for quite a long time. Yes conducting dives, I'm sure, with children involved. Um, it just sort of suggests that the bar is becoming higher and higher and higher for these activities, especially with regards to children. What do you think? Look, it, it is a, it's a difficult one, particularly with adventure tourism itself, which the it's written into the legislation that the, the whole point of adventure tourism is to expose people to risk. Um, there is obviously a balance between going complete over the top and not making it a fun activity anymore. Um, but some things there, for example, the flotation devices or, or identifying mm. a, a particularly rocky or, or choppy cave, 
you need to balance the interest between we want to make it exhilarating, but at the same time we want to make sure that we're, we're cutting out some really dangerous aspects to that. Matt, thanks so much for coming in. Not a problem. Lovely to be here. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Kiwi Bank has reported a higher full-year profit in the year ended June to $175 million. With us is Chief Executive Steve Djurkovic. So, Steve, it's a year of two halves by the looks. Yeah, I mean, the second half, I think most people in New Zealand would accept has been tougher going. Um, and the first half was us, for us was very strong. Second half, still good, uh, but nowhere near as strong as the first half. And I think that reflects a, a pretty strongly cooling co- economy and probably business confidence being quite a bit lower, half on half. This result driven by the looks net interest income up quite substantially. Yeah, strong performance on that side. Uh, look, I'm really proud of how the team performed right across our big markets. So business banking grew really strongly, north of 20%. Uh, home loan markets was really strong against the, uh, what is always a very competitive market. So I'm um, really happy with how we grew there and, and just as well, we and, and just as strongly in deposits. So, you know, really pleased with across the board performance. Your business lending, is this lending to new businesses, existing businesses? A mixture. So we're doing much better at banking what I'd call the medium-sized businesses of New Zealand. So, you know, probably those businesses that got, say, between 20 and 100 employees. Um, and that's you know, it's an area where we struggled a bit over the time. People, now we're much, you know, I think we've got much better awareness. People understand the capabilities we've got. And ultimately, a lot of people who run a New Zealand business want to bank with a New Zealand business. And so we've seen that growth, which has been really pleasing. It's been a year of disruption for businesses as well with the weather events in January and February. What are they telling you about that? And they coming to you for assistance? Yeah, they are. I mean, a lot of them probably what we're seeing at the moment is using the cash reserves that they've built up. So rather than uh, looking to bend to cover, uh, sorry, borrow to cover, you know, debts and things like that, actually most of them are using existing resources. But we are seeing people be a lot more cautious about their investments you know, hiring intentions are down quite strongly uh, as people sort of wait to see how this plays out. If you think about probably now not getting a rate cut until sometime mid next year, people are sort of getting used to the idea of that their operating costs are going to be higher for longer. Quite understandably, most of them will be, you know, facing into quite significant pay rises for their team to retain their best people, like all businesses. So, you know, those are tough operating conditions and, and people are reacting to those. The rate cuts may not filter through, though, till late next year, according to the Reserve Bank. Yeah, look, I mean, we're of the view that they should be sooner and that people are really feeling the pain. Uh, but we, I guess what we would say is we reluctantly accept that they probably won't move down no sooner than mid-next year calendar. Um, but I think if you talk to most people, businesses and personal, they will feel that they're really feeling the bite. Uh, and actually maybe those cuts could come a bit sooner. I don't think they will, but I think they should. Where's home lending at and the people rolling over onto higher rates? Yeah, I mean, and since October last year, we started ringing people and saying, look, we notice your payments are going up by more than $500 a month. How can we help? What, what are you thinking about? What are your options? You know, and, and in those conversations, we explore the ideas around maybe you want to re-extend the term, maybe you want to pay a little bit less principal, um, maybe you need a, a bit of a break for a while. Maybe you need something to, you know, debt consolidate and tighten you over from higher interest rates. So, 
um, I'd say month on month, more people are way more engaged in those conversations. Like for quite a few people, when we're ringing, they were sort of saying, hey, you know, it's okay at the moment. But I think, again, as we talked about earlier, if you think about interest rates being higher for longer, people will be really starting to realise, hey, this is the new normal. And if I need to make some changes, now's the time to do so. How many more people do you have to roll over? Uh, we're about four, we've probably got about 45% of people still coming through. I mean, one of the things to think about, I guess, um, for your viewers is a number of people that are you know listening and participating will have different tranches of loans. So they might have fixed some of their loan for two years, some for four years, some for five years. So for some people, it's not all felt in one hit. Um, and so when I talk about that, that's an aggregate. So some customers would have locked in for five years, will go through this part of the cycle and nothing changes. Uh, but traditionally, New Zealanders like to fix for one or two years. And so, as I say, we've got about 40-odd percent of people that will still go through this change. What about customers defaulting or missing their loan payments? Where's that at? Yeah, starting to come back to what's probably, you know, I've been, I'm old enough to be in the business for a little while. Um, and what we're seeing now is default, uh, you know, like hardship rates coming back to what's been far more normal. Um, so Kiwi Bank's impairments are about a quarter of the big four, um, so we are quite a lot lower. But actually, what we are seeing is, if I think about, you know, over the five years that I've been in the role, actually those impairment rates are starting to come back to what is, is a bit more traditional off a really, really, really low period. So you're expecting further slowing in home lending growth this new financial year. Yeah, look, that's a, it's a really interesting question. I think the market will be a bit slower. I mean, we've really reached more people through focusing on having a stronger brand and dealing with more advisors. And advisors in tough markets play a really important part. And so as we grow our reach into the advisor market, we're still targeting outperforming the market. So I'd like to really believe that we're going to grow and we've got off to a, a strong start. Say, for instance, the last couple of months, about 10% of the applications and home loans in New Zealand have come to KiwiBank. So that compares to our market share of just over seven. So, you know, one of the things we try and do is, you know, literally be half as good again. Um, so I'm hopeful we'll grow. I think prices are starting to stabilise or on the rise, I think, generally. So that in summertime, so hopefully, you know, we actually get a summer um, and we have far less weather interruptions and that should help the market. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic is probably how I'd describe about the home loan market. Are first-time buyers still coming to you or are they walking away? Uh, no, first-time buyers are still coming, um, but you have to accept that, you know, servicing costs are higher than they were before. Um, you know, perhaps some people think they're getting better value for what they're buying. Um, and that innate desire to have, you know, your own home and a roof over your head is still really, really powerful. Um, but it's harder going and, and saving for those deposits with a higher cost of living is harder going. So... Look, I don't think there's any doubt that it's still really challenging. We've tried to bring, you know, and advertise different ways you can do that so you can co-own with other people and get that first step on the ladder. I think that's going to be more and more important. Where are you at with customer numbers? Is there a lot of churn, a lot of competition in the sector at the moment, given there's a spotlight on you with the ComCom? Yeah, I mean, it does probably help in the sense that, you know, one of the conversations that comes out of the study is that, the big four banks in Australia, that are Australian-owned in this market are very profitable. Uh, that does create a conversation about, hey, what are my options? So, you know, I mean, as you can see, we, you know, we grew strongly in deposits, we grew strongly in business lending, we grew strongly uh, in retail home loan lending. So, yes, people are switching. 
I do think one of the risks is that somehow we think magically a Commerce Commission study, which reveals kind of very well-known facts, like New Zealand has a profitable banking industry, um, is going to make some change when it ultimately comes down to customers going, you know what, I think I need to change, I'm going to change, and I've got options, and now I'm going to do something about those options. And so I think if you can make it easier, so more advertising of the ease of switching, you know, open banking and consumer data rights, probably all those things will help. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to personal choice and Kiwi Bank earning the right to be your bank. And so not much changes on that. It certainly puts the spotlight on where your strong returns go, which for us is right back into New Zealand and New Zealand having a more valuable asset. Hopefully that's important to a lot of people. And then we just need to do everything we can to be a better bank for them. Steve Jerkovich, thanks for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.